0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading, short and deep, The Dogs of Salem by David H. Keller. This was first published in Weird Tales, September 1928. And um, uh, we've done a lot to David H. Keller before this podcast. However, this is a little bit different because it has a uh, very different historical setting, a uh, Salem witch trial style setting, and I have some questions for Eric and, um, and some thoughts about this story itself, but uh, I'd love for you to read it to us, Eric, and then maybe that will help clarify my questions and and uh, you will have some answers for me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'd be happy to read it. I enjoyed reading it earlier to myself, and I'm happy to read it aloud for us, the Dogs of Salem. For several reasons, the people of Salem did not feel kindly toward the two cobblers who had decided to make that town their home. It is true that they made very good shoes, which were greatly needed by the settlers, not only made good new shoes, but were more than willing to repair old ones, an economy which should have appealed to the thrifty Puritans. It was also remarked, to their credit, that they always attended church on the Lord's Day, and on that day, and all others behaved and conducted themselves with the greatest propriety. Yet, in spite of all this, the fact remained that they were foreigners." probably Italians or Spaniards. For all anyone knew, they might be papists, spies, traitors to the very people who kept them alive by wearing their shoes. Then, too, the twin daughters of the richest man in town were more friendly to these nobodies than the other young men liked to see. In fact, the brother cobblers were not at all popular socially as far as the men were concerned, even though the women all looked at them sidewise. Timothy Thomas did not like them. He hated them both equally, Amos of the dark hair and Andrew of the fair skin. Repeatedly, he warned his daughters not to have any dealings with them, but Anna and Ruth kept on making trips to the cobbler shop. It was astonishing how fast their shoes wore out. The father scolded and threatened and chided and prayed over his daughters, but they kept on wearing out their shoes and going to have them repaired, and nothing could keep the four young people apart. Angry and vexed, Timothy Thomas grew melancholy. He had almost reached the point where he was ready to lock his daughters in their bedroom when the entire settlement was agitated and disturbed by the working of witches among the simple folk. After a lot of talk and gossip, Bridget Bishop was brought to trial on the 2nd of June, 1692. Her case was a very clear one. Even the judges felt that the trial was simply a legal formality, but nonetheless took testimony of several persons. One said that this witch had looked at her, and at once she had been seized by the colic. Another man stated that he was standing in the door of his house with an apple in his hand. The witch looked at him, and the apple jumped out of his hand and landed in his mother's lap. A young woman told how she had had a dream of a man assaulting her, but when she cried out, the man proved to be Bridget Bishop there was no doubt that she had power over the people. If she so much as scratched her head during the trial, at least a dozen young girls in the courtroom did the same, like so many monkeys. One very important witness, who had been caused to fall into fits for many years by this witch, came to tell her story, but Bridget looked at her and she was kept from talking by the appearance of another fit. There was nothing to do but to condemn this follower of the devil to death. And this was done. Susanna Martin was tried on the 29th of June, 1692. She was accused of many things, but mainly of keeping imps of darkness around her house in the shape of black dogs. If she disliked a man, she would give him a black puppy, and in the course of time, this young dog would have fits and run and bite the man and his children. She also took unfortunate Joseph Ring with her to a Sabbath, at which place he was given a knock on the back, which made him motionless, unable to move or to speak. At these places, the devil tried to make him sign a book, but this he refused to do. After his return to his bed, he would awake sore in the muscles and bruised over his body. Susanna Martin showed plainly that she was guilty by pleading that she had led a most virtuous and holy life. This, of course, was the most absurd statement for her to make when everyone knew that she actually kept black dogs. As a result of these and similar trials, 19 persons were hanged. Among these was Mr. George Burroughs, a preacher who showed positively that he was a witch by affirming often in the public that the whole excitement was due to ignorance and superstition. There were some who believed him and opposed his execution, but the Reverend Cotton Mather appeared near the scaffold on horseback and said he knew the man was a witch and imposter and that those who pitied him were his comrades and likewise under the power of the devil. After this speech, Burroughs was hanged without any more protest, save from his own lips, which did not count. To the surprise of all, the more witches that were hanged, the more the good people were afflicted by the evil works of the devil and his emissaries. Many young girls had fits, were found with hair in their mouths, and crooked pins inside their fast-closed hands. Persons who were unsuspected came forward and stated that they were witches and asked to be hanged with their comrades. Occasionally, a suspected person was obdurate and would neither answer questions nor plead guilty or innocence. One such case, a man was put between two boards and pressed to death. At the very end, he made signs that he was willing to speak, but the blood filled his mouth and he died silent. Those who saw this were satisfied that the devil had sent the blood to keep him still, which was a very satisfactory explanation to all, especially the judges who had ordered the pressing. Timothy Thomas attended many of these trials. He was even a juryman when Elizabeth Howe was tried at Salem on the 30th of June, 1692. After such a liberal education, he felt that he knew considerable about the diabolical mechanisms of the followers of Satan. The entire community considered him an authority on the subject. Meantime, the intimacy between his daughters and the two young cobblers continued, and Mr. Thomas, for all his wealth and power, seemed unable to stop it. He continued continued to brood over it to his great surprise a half-witted boy came to his house one evening and whispered to him that he had seen the two cobblers while they were in swimming and that each of them had the devil's mark on his shoulder the imbecile also declared that they looked at him and laughingly whispered to themselves and that on the way home he was set upon by two large black dogs Mr. Thomas talked at length to the boy, and the next day, which was the Lord's Day, this same boy shrieked out in meeting that he was being bitten by two dogs and that their names were Amos and Andrew. There were marks on the boy's arms which looked like the signs of teeth. The minister, Mr. Price, immediately consulted with the magistrate and with Mr. Timothy Thomas, with the result that the two cobblers were at once arrested. Indeed, they were captured by the soldiers in the meeting house before they had time to escape and were securely placed in the town prison. When they were brought to trial, there were some among the citizens who said in whispers that the whole matter was worthless, as all knew smiling Samuel to be a natural and a nitwit. However, it was a different matter when Mr. Thomas himself took the stand and swore to these things as of his own knowledge and not as hearsay. He demanded that the cobblers be examined for the mark of the beast. There it was on the left shoulder of East, a red mark similar to the head of a goat. Of course, it had been changed since Smiling Samuel saw it, for he stated after kissing the book that it was three times larger and looked like the pit of hell itself. Things began to look bad for the cobblers. Mr. Thomas said he saw the boy when he fell and said the dogs were after him. Even while he was giving his testimony, a woman in the audience, a very good and pious lady of great charity, cried out so all could hear, They come and bite me, Lord Jesus, save me from the black dogs, and fell in a fit. When she was examined, the marks of teeth were found on her wrist and in her hand, a bent pin stuck into the flesh, which, she said, Amos Canning had thrown at her from his eye. Dr. Smithers was called to examine the devil's marks. He found that they did not bleed when stuck with a pin. At this part of the trial, the judge asked the two men what they had to say concerning the accusations and just who the dogs were who had bitten all these people the brothers whispered between themselves, and then Amos, being the older, arose and said that they were innocent of any harm, that they had led good lives, and as for the marks on them, they had been born with them. He also stated that it was time for the people of Salem to come to their senses and stop believing such nonsense. Of course, after that, there was nothing to do, say, give the matter to the jury. And while they took longer at it than was the usual habit of juries in such cases, still they finally declared the two brothers guilty. Without delay, the judge sentenced them to be hanged on the third day from that time. On the morning of this day, the jailer, going, as was his habit, to carry to the condemned men their breakfast, was startled to find the brothers not in their cell, but in the cell securely fastened by fetters and chains, were two black dogs who howled dismally and tried to break their bonds and attack the frightened man. Closing and locking the door, he at once ran to the house of the magistrate, who, when he heard the tale, went to see the minister, Mr. Price. The two, on their way to the jail, called out, Mr. Timothy Thomas to go with them it was early in the day and neither of the Thomas damsels had arisen to begin the day's work so Mr. Thomas interested beyond measure at the news went eagerly with the other officials and on the way a large crowd joined them the jailer's wife having lost no time in spreading the news of the metamorphosis though of course she did not use that name in the telling of the story. Arriving at the cell, they found it an easy matter to confirm the jailer's story. The men were not there, but the dogs were. The sharp eyes of the minister, however, saw something that the jailer had not noticed. This was a message written on parchment, and while the body of the letter was printed in capital letters, still the signatures were in bold script. Clearing his throat, the minister read in loud tones so that all could hear. To our dear friends in Salem, having no desire to die young and in such a manner as hanging, we considered it the proper thing to ask for aid, and we therefore appealed to our God and he directed us that upon a certain night he would change our shape into those of black dogs and they to stay in prison and suffer for us the penalty of our sins. Our God told us that our spirits would roam free of Salem and northward into the great woods there to abide with two salamanders in peace and happiness as a reward for our sufferings in Salem and we warn everyone not to follow us in our flight through the air as we will be protected by a mighty following of man-eating birds of prey. Witness our hand and seal given in this year of the devil, Asmodeus, 1692. Amos Canning, Andrew Canning. This letter caused a sensation even among the most hardened witch hunters. If this devil could thus save two of his witches, where would his power stop? Denunciations were heard on all sides and the excitement rose to such a pitch that the minister, Mr. Price suggested that he lead them in prayer for divine guidance. After doing so, and his prayer was a wonderful one in many ways, in spite of the howling of the dogs, he asked Mr. Timothy Thomas if he felt the spirit of the Lord directing him. That gentleman, without the least hesitation, replied that he felt God telling him in the spirit that these two familiars of the witches should suffer the penalty of death. Thereat The magistrate directed the soldiers to take them to the scaffold and at once hang them. So on the same gallows where the witches had been hanged, these two black devil dogs gasped out their lives, after which they were burned on faggots while the minister, Mr. Price, Preached a sermon more powerful than usual in its denunciation of the devil and his worshipers. During this sermon, smiling Samuel cried, I see them! I see them flying through the air! It was nearly ten in the morning before Mr. Timothy Thomas returned to his home. There were no signs of either of his daughters or breakfast. A frantic search failed to locate either Anna or Ruth. A more careful investigation showed him that his strongbox was broken into and much of his wealth taken from it. This loss threw him into a brain fever, which held him bedfast for many months. When he recovered, he found that no one wanted to talk about witchcraft anymore, the good folk of Salem having recovered from their period of hysteria. Nonetheless, he counted the two damsels as being dead and in the hands of the devil, and he mourned for them the rest of his life, nor could he be reconciled to his loss. Shortly after the hanging of the two dogs, the jailer, who had always been a poor man and therefore considered honest, moved to Pennsylvania where he bought a large plantation from the pens, paying for it outright in gold. For many years after that, there lived in Quebec two cobblers, noted for the excellency of their work and for the beauty of their wives
0: okay so uh i i was like surprised by this story because i thought it was going to be a weird tale because it was in weird tales and it kind of is a weird tale but i think uh that's not exactly what's going on when i first wrote about this story i described it as um uh Two Satanist cobblers flee their bodies after being arrested for witchcraft. The story reads like history or perhaps a sixth thing of the Brothers Grimm folktale called The Twelve Dancing Princesses, uh, which we've done on this podcast. Um, The Twelve Dancing Princesses is about um, uh, twelve princesses who mysteriously wear out their shoes um, and the father wants to find out why. Turns out they're going underground and dancing the nights away with uh, 12 underground fantasy princes. Um, (laughs) uh, There is no dog in that one, but the dog element also made me think of um, a folktale. So there's a lot of folktale feeling in here, but a lot of the stuff that's in here, Eric, is actually like real witchcraft trial history so i don't absolutely i don't really understand I, I i think i think keller is trying to explain uh in a non-supernatural way the supernatural explanation that everybody is doing and i think he does a pretty good job but i'm not 100 percent sure what do you think about this story
1: well, I remember that Keller is a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and I, I think what he's doing here is giving us a story of mass hysteria, yeah, and showing that it um, it ultimately resolves. Uh, I like it, and it, it's it's funny after all because nobody we really care about gets hurt. In fact, um, the the overbearing miserly father who's standing in the way of young love. Is the one who winds up uh, having a brain fever and losing his money. I think that uh, if one takes a certain reading of the Merchant of Venice, you're you're glad that uh, that that the Jew winds up having to pay out that money, even though he's been perfectly good. Um, so, at least from modern standards, not from the standards of Venice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that the story is more though than just um, a. an exposition of the workings of mass hysteria. I think that it's almost um, a science fiction. Oh. In that he gives us the clues, you know, like hard SF. He gives us the clues again and again to show us how this mass hysteria manages to take hold. Mm -hmm. He shows us that when somebody says something right, a fortiori, that shows that it's wrong. Because after all, the devil would have lied and said exactly that thing. Right. He, he shows us that people have crooked pins in their hands and magically they have they're bleeding. Yeah. And nobody wants to make the connection. It's clear that people are doing this to themselves. Then the question arises, why are they doing it for themselves? And he gives us many, many motives. For instance, he tells us there are people who come and say, yes, yes, I'm a witch. I'm a witch. Um <laughs> you know it's it's terrific to have social recognition. People want that oh, yeah. even if it hurts them. And in fact, the ones who said I am a witch clearly wanted it to that degree. The ones who protested their innocence clearly didn't. The man who gets pressed to death, oh, yeah. Giles Corey is the historical figure and he also appears uh Uh, very centrally in uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which is also about the Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't speak because he doesn't want to condemn his wife. It's not that he's worried about himself, but his wife gets condemned as a witch. He knows he can't say she's innocent because that'll prove that he's a witch. He knows he can't say that she's a witch to save his own life because that would condemn his wife. And so famously at a certain point, when he is being interrogated and said, "Will you tell us? Will you tell us?" He says, "More weight," and he gets pressed to death. Um, you can't say one thing or the other if society as a whole is construing uh, is construing uh, meaning. Uh, but I think that uh, Keller is going further than just looking at the psychology, both the individual and the group psychology. He's also showing us that the people who are in town, who are the leaders and should know better, have other motives entirely. Mm-hmm. Right? The cobblers are foreign, Italian or Spanish.
0: <laughs> yeah. Canning, very Italian name. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what
1: it was originally. But, but in fact, they are treated as if they might be Catholic. Right. Right. And the fact that they flee to Quebec, which is in a Catholic part of the world, um, suggests that maybe that was in fact the case, Um, that they were only shamming being Protestant. Um, But we don't know that. What we do know is they need to get out of the United States because they are with these two girls who are very much attracted to them. And they continue to be good cobblers. Mm -hmm. And there in Canada— they are quite well tolerated, so the, the the simpleton easily can say, you know, I saw this, I saw that, because he's picking up um, ideas from the society, mm-hmm. and it's easy enough to see something, you know, interpreted a certain way, um, and he's he's a fool, he's a nitwit, no no mind, um, smiling Samuel, silent smiling Samuel, but when. Timothy Thomas asserts that it's not hearsay. If we believe the omniscient narrator, and I think we have to if we want to believe that we know what happened in Quebec. Right. If we believe the omniscient narrator, Timothy Thomas is outright lying. Mm-hmm. Right? Cuz it's he he didn't do that. He just picked up simple Samuel's story. Um he's lying. And why is he lying? What is it that he wants? What is it that he doesn't want? Well, we, we know that the that the jailer was considered honest because he was poor and maybe that tells us that you know you get to be rich by being willing to connive, mm-hmm. perhaps dissimulate, perhaps lie so Timothy Thomas in fact is a man who has become rich, we see that he lies and he doesn't fall into a brain fever if we can believe the narrator because his daughters are gone to him, they're dead. He falls into a brain fever because his money is gone, and that money turns out to be what allows the um, the jailer to uh, buy his own plantation in Pennsylvania. Um, I can't help but notice that there is a satire against the entire society. Even the judges thought that the the, the, the trial was a mere legal formality. Right, uh- but they went ahead with it nonetheless. The minister who is the one who has the most local authority and is absolutely reinforced by Cotton Mather, who is the greatest of all authorities religiously at that time. Um, The minister who says yes to this and yes to that is Mr. Price. Mm -hmm. In other words, this is not merely a demonstration of how mass hysteria works and eventually works its way out Um, it is also a demonstration that there are crass motives on the parts of many people even the supposedly religious to let this mass hysteria take hold that mass hysteria may arise for some simpleton like Samuel but it is supported sustained and made the public norm by people like Mr. Price and the richest man in town mm-hmm. this is I think um, quite an interesting argument, and one of the reasons it's interesting is not stated in the story at all, but you and I both know that the Puritans, who are known for their severe uh, clothing right the, mm-hmm. the the black broadcloth and the the the, the buckled shoes. Um, They were wearing what was at the time the most expensive attire one could have and still be modest. It was the most expensive cloth. It was silver buckles on their shoes, not iron, Mm -hmm. not pewter, because they believed, this is a, a subset of Calvinism after all, that you could tell who the elect were, those whom God had favored from birth. You could tell who the elect were. If they were leading good lives, they would be rewarded in right. life. In other words, to be rich is to be righteous. And what we're seeing here, therefore, is not just a an exposition of the dynamic of uh, avarice behind mass hysteria, we're also seeing, I think, a critique if not of Protestantism at least of Puritanism
0: Sounds right uh, there's, there's also a little mystery that we can solve um, What happened to uh, Mr. Timothy Thomas's money? Uh, well, um, turns out that Jailer discovers two dogs in his his uh, jail. Surprise, surprise! He runs to uh, tell Mr. Timothy Thomas and the judge. Uh, arriving at the cell, um, it is the sharp-eyed minister who spots something the jailer hadn't noticed, which is this note, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> written in all caps, um, and then signed at the bottom. Um, and it's even got, a like, a surprise. They're saying, our god, and then it turns out their god is the Asmodeus, a.k.a. the devil. Um, but the coda for the story is, uh, shortly thereafter, the jailer was found to being able to buy a uh, a plantation in Pennsylvania. And this was the poor man, right? <laughs> right. So where did that money come from? Hmm, I wonder... Um, exactly. And then we find out many years later in Quebec, two gobblers. So we are supposed to read it subversively, um, for sure. I I think that that's what uh, Keller wants us to do. There's a there's quite a few sort of wry asides, like there was nothing to do but condemn the follower of the devil to death, <laughs> and this was done. Um, right. I'm less sure about. Um, A couple other things, and there's also another great meta line. Um, uh, Mr. Thomas, interested beyond measure at the news, went eagerly with the other officials on their way to, uh, like, interested (laughs) and went eagerly. Why? Because he wanted those guys hanged, right? Absolutely. Uh, Right, so he's not just interested, he's, like, angry, Uh, like, they're going to get away with it. Uh, uh, went eagerly with the other officials and on the way, a large crowd joined them, the jailer's wife having lost no time in spreading the news of the metamorphosis. Well, she's going to benefit too, right? Though, of course, she did not use that name in the telling of the story. Uh, And that name as in metamorphosis, right? They've been transformed! Or whatever it is she (laughs) would have said. Um, She's in on it too right
1: she Absolutely. she
0: said you know this is our this is the way we finally get out of this this hell town <laughs> because literally uh anybody can accuse anyone else of being a witch. it's a horror like the Salem witchcraft trials are mass hysteria but with deadly results right. Today, people get mm-hmm. accused of being Putin puppets or getting paid in rubles <laughs> you know, for for disagreeing with something online. But uh, you, you know, you can you can have your PayPal account you know blocked or Patreon uh, dismissed. But this uh, this actually like would cost people lives, right? Not just lose their source of income, but they would literally be murdered by this you know crazed. Liars and people in a mania and and the fact that everybody is contributing to it and everybody's going into fits whenever they want their attention it's like it, it's a hell place you don't want to live in this town indeed and, and and so that's why you know we get the crucible and Arthur Miller being compared to uh you know the red what well, was the second Red trial. Right, yeah right. McCarthy trial and it it was it was a painful reminder of of a reality that we don't think about but we can get into a really bad headspace but i think keller is is like literally telling us the answers just get out of there cuz there's no fighting it it has to it's like a fever you have to get out of there
1: i think he's i think he's giving i agree with that but i think he's also subtly giving us two other um two other Ways to to manage to undo this. One is. We need to start listening to women. It is women who are condemned as witches almost exclusively. And the only man we see is the one who won't speak up about his wife's uh, witchcraft. It's mostly women. And the word witch connotes women for most people. Um, But in fact. The escape here is initiated and enabled by women. That is, there's a reason we're told that the whole letter was written in capital letters, Mm -hmm. but then signed. Because the sisters prepared the letter in advance, stole the money, bought off the jailer, and all the guys had to do was quickly sign their names and get out of there. Mm. Right. So we need to listen to women. In fact, if we listened to them, we wouldn't automatically think that their protestations of innocence were demonstrations of their guilt. So one thing here is you need to listen to women. The second thing, I think, is that we could have had this exact same story if there had been one cobbler and one daughter. Right. As there is in the Merchant of Venice. But in fact, there are two cobblers and two daughters. And I think this is for a number of reasons, but one of them, I think, is this, that it suggests that while an individual may understand things better, and we see that there are individuals who say, no, no, you guys have to forget all this stuff, and then they get killed, right? Mm -hmm. While individuals might speak out against society, society is just too big. But if you have someone with you, if you can begin to develop your own little society it's possible to stand against the larger society so it's not just a matter of looking at things right it's a matter of being able to share that with someone who has a similar feeling and wants to have society change so i think keller is giving us a pretty darn good look at social psychology, not just individual psychology. Uh, and those critics um, who have said the Keller was great with ideas, but not so good with their execution, I think this is a very smoothly written story mm. that is terrific at the surface, gives us a satisfying mystery, as you suggested, and yet the more we think about the specifics of it, you know, the hounds of hell, um, the more we realize this is a This is a smoothly, well-written story with a very interesting message that goes well beyond um, the Salem Witch Trials, I think.
0: Yeah, I I have one last question for you. Um, Do you think there is any connection between the names Amos and Andrew and the famous Amos and Andy um, radio television phenomenon? The, the, The dates... Are very closely lined up, but I can't understand how they could be connected. Is it just a coincidence? Um,
1: I I believe it's a coincidence. I don't see anything about Amos and Andy. I, I don't know when Amos and Andy began. Nineteen twenty-eight. <laughs> really? Yeah. Nineteen twenty-eight. That's fascinating. It is. Uh, uh, but um, I, I, I don't I don't see it. I I mean,
0: I think it's because uh, you're a Amos, witch, Eric. I beg your pardon? I think it's because you're a witch. (laughs) That's right. Well,
1: you know, then, we're going to have to have a trial because clearly, once you've made an assertion like that, after reading a story like this, there's always more to say. (laughs)
0: Nice. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.